You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Everybody across the land, here's a special from SequelCast, though I don't know what it's gonna be about. Welcome to the Secret Special, a show in which we talk about whatever topics we please. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Take a look. It's in a book. A sequel cast to. And Alex. A sequel cast to. We are uh, doing a topic of our favorite books uh, about the filmmaking process, but also books about the making of films. Um, it's, you know... A, when you love movies and you're crazy enough to do a podcast, like I've been doing podcasting, Jesus, since 2005, but the sequel cast I've been doing since 2009, I think that's right, Thrasher. Sounds like, sounds about oh, right. Oh, that, that sounds about right. Damn. Quite a long time. Um, you know, when you, when you love film to that degree, and undoubtedly you read books about film or inspired by books and so forth, and maybe even go into filmmaking a bit, which Thrasher and I took filmmaking courses in college. I don't know about you, Alex, if you ever formally took a film, a film class or film history class, not that it matters. In community college, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, that's wrong <laughs> with that. Some there there was one professor, and she had three different classes. <laughs> and you took all three? All three of them, yep. What, what in- courses, just wondering? Intro to cinema, um, international cinema, and American cinema. So all film theory. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it was a watch a movie per class, discuss it, write about it, and then yep. a midterm and a final. Yeah. Back when you had some rope, some time, and a dream. Yep. <laughs> I think the first one, the first one we sh- saw was uh, the Bicycle Thief. In the oh, intro class. Yeah. Classic. Uh, what about Thrasher? What you did film as a minor? Is that right? Yeah, I did do film in a minor. It was uh, it was incomplete by I think one or two classes because really? of a horrible, nice. horrible experience I had with the professor, who I later found out was totally unqualified to even be teaching. So, what? Um, why don't you list? Okay, sure. But why don't why don't you list what uh, courses those were? I'm kind of curious. Okay, so I had uh, I had uh, intro to I had intro to film one and two. I had screenwriting. Uh, I had, let me see, I believe I had a, I had a depth and field, uh, class. What, is, what does that even mean? Or not depth, not depth and field. It was a cinematography class. Oh, oh cinematography. Okay. Yep. Um, this wasn't part of the minor, but there was overlap. I had uh, two storyboarding courses, sure. uh, that had a lot of overlap with film. Uh, it was lighting and field, uh, where things fell apart. Now, you'd think, oh, lighting and field, we're going to learn about lighting. Great. Hey, you know when we busted out the lighting kits? The Never. second to last day of class. When you say lighting and field, what does the field part mean? You mean working out in the field? Is that the implication? Uh, well, the title strikes me as odd. 
we're working like the field, field? Pro- properly properly setting up a set uh-huh. uh sort of so basically taking into account both the camera and the environment the camera is going to be filming did you have that infamous professor at scad who uh I believe he was a cinematography professor. I never took his class, but as part of what scared me off a film degree, uh, sort of stupidly, is he had, I'm a terrible um, painter or artist in, in that respect, but he had an assignment where you, you pick a scene from a film, then using um, local you know friends or actors or whatever, you had to relight it in a perfect way and then do a painting of that. Uh, I never, I never like, did like that. Talk about no, bullshit that assignments. But... That sounds a bit extra. <laughs> oh, no, no. I will tell you what a bullshit assignment was. Yeah, and go for this, it. this was in that lighting and field class. Uh-huh. Um, you had to pick, you had to pick a scene. And basically the whole assignment was take a screen capture of every camera angle or cut in the scene and just like lay them out. We didn't do anything with those. We didn't talk about them. It was just to do it. And here's the thing. This is this is like the, you know the beautiful dawning of the digital age where we all had software on our computers. This is the, the or, early 2000s. If, if I'm getting this right, Thrasher, you could just use print screen to get... Yeah, yeah. I could have okay. put the DVD into my desktop and printed everything out of okay. my home printer. No, Easy. no, no. We had to rent one of two of these weird printers that could extract stuff from an analog television and print it on a special a special type of printer paper that was like for $50 a spool. That's horseshit. That would yeah, print it out cool. in like a continuous strip, which we would have to cut up anyway for the, the terms of the it, assignment. And mount it on your thing, yeah. Weird. Yeah, I mean... Is this an exercise that would come in handy for nope. versioning directors or editors? Or? Well, I I would say it would if I hadn't already done something like this in three other classes. Yeah, that's uh, kooky. I, I will say this: if you if you are getting into if you're uh, getting in any creative field and you are attending classes. I would say this is a big red flag to watch out for. If there's ever a heated debate between students and a professor involving a particular artist, uh, you know, th- this this is the red flag. Um, if, the, if the, and I'll just use film as an example, if the film professor ever says, well, would you like to watch a film by X every day, by X director every day? That's not the question you should be asking. The question should be, do you want to make X kind of movie? Right. Not what do you want to watch. We were not in that class paying God knows how much money to <laughs> decide what we wanted to watch. We were trying to get right. the skills we needed we're, to make the things we class, wanted like, to make. Wasn't each class at the time we went about $3,000 a semester? Or, or was it $200 like a class if you broke it down or something? It was oh, a, like, yeah. it I was don't a private rem- university. I don't remember, but it was it was a lot. Too much. Um. Yeah, just to go through my film class bona fides before we talk about film books that have inspired us. uh, I, you know, went to, stupidly went to three colleges in five years, but eventually graduated with a bachelor's degree. And um, for what that's worth in in video game design, so changing majors I would not recommend doing. I did that a few times. (laughs) I always lose all these credits. Uh, Initially at Georgia State University, I took um, a screen writing course I took a playwriting course. Um, I took a film, 
I think like film 101 in a film history course. And then at, at SCAD, when I initially was doing film stuff, I took uh, screenwriting 201 and um, kind of as crossover stuff took like uh, music for motion pictures and sound design and, and those sort of things. And I think Thrasher and I, we met in a film editing course using Avid, maybe, as the editing I... package. With Golkan, I... with the Turkish professor. What it was, was it? I thought that was film. I thought that was film too. Maybe I'm might wrong. Have, might have been film. We, we shot on digital tape. I'm sure all our listeners have tuned out by now, but yeah, <laughs> we, we shot on digital tape. It, things yeah. were more of a pain in the ass to do. It wasn't quite like full digital as, as it is now. It was, it was a transitional phones. period. <laughs> yeah, a very yeah. frustrating. You can really period. light for it, right? I mean, you can light for anything, but it just yeah, it, it, it looks like shit. Good. Like digital stuff looked like shit back then. Is what it comes down to, even in, in prosumer. Uh, things but i mean ostensibly what this episode of sequel cast special is about is film books that inspired us and so forth and i I think why don't we start with the question what's the first film book you ever read and this can either be about the making of star wars or whatever or it can be about a book about the making of film what's the first one that you know grabbed your attention maybe at the library or at the bookstore um i can actually answer that question because it's one of the ones i picked out it was okay the essential Jackie Chan ah. source book I got ah. for Christmas like a million years ago. Okay. I still have it to this day. It's, I mean, it came out right when, you know, Rumble in the Bronx was blowing up and everything. Sure. So I've had it since I was 11, 1997. And this is still a very cool book that I reference quite a bit. And this is before, you know, this is before, you know, Wikipedia and IMDb and junk. So it's cool. It's got basically a breakdown of all of his movies that he's ever starred in. And it's got like a plot synopsis. And then it's got like trivia, a little like behind the scenes notes and stuff like that. And a lot of crazy cool um, information. So, yeah, that's uh, one of the first and one of my favorites. I, I think this thing's great. So if you can find it on Amazon, I would, I would hunt that down for sure. Looks like it has a lot of photographs in it. Yeah, it's got the little photo section in the middle. Like, uh, I thought this was cute. It's, um, this is kind of hilarious. Where uh, Jackie Chan fan club, there's a picture, Jackie makes war, and then Jackie makes peace. <laughs> yeah, a lot of cool stuff, though. Thrasher, what about you? So, I... I know I still have a copy of this book somewhere. Uh, I unfortunately could not find it for this recording, uh, so I'm not sure I'm getting. I, I'm not. I don't. I don't know the title, but it was a. It was a book that my grandmother gave me. It was. It was with two books that, like, one she gave me for my birthday, one she gave me for Christmas, but. It was she got it shortly after my parents had gotten our first video camera, and so me and my my siblings and my cousins. I would film like like little comedy scenes with him, and so oh well, he's he's into making movies. We'll get him this. And it was just this thin like kids book about making movies, but it kind of, but it did it covered everything briefly. Like every segment was maybe one to two pages long with lots of illustrations, but it really did break down. Like okay, you, here here's here's how you get your concept. Here's how you write a script. Here's how you cast a, a, a short a film. Here's how here's how you light a shot to get different effects. Like right. it was this perfect like beginning beginners filmmakers book, and I've read it mm. several times 
like when I was a preteen, uh, I would sometimes like when I was a teenager or even actually in college, I would flip back through it just for a little sort of jolt of, of, of inspiration and childlike wonder. I hope I can find it. Cause I really want to give want to give the proper title. It was like, like make, make, make your movies or, or, or your movies or something like that. It's tricky to look up these titles, aren't they? Cause a lot of these film books have such generic titles or similar sounding titles. To track these things down. I find it helps to use Google Image in the search because when you use oh, the sure. way search engines work, you know, it's always like if you write like you know the moving image book, it's going to have a bajillion different God knows what's. <laughs> but yeah, with image search, it's it works a little bit better. Yeah. yeah like, oh, I remember that cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. I I mean I mentioned this in the show a lot before, but I, I lived overseas until I was yeah let's say like fourth grade more or less, and so we had. The, you know, the library at the embassy or the library at the uh, uh, sort of English academies we went to and so forth. Um, it was kind of limited what we could have, but I, I do recall there is these, uh, a series of five books with these neon orange covers that were about horror films. And one was like Dracula. One was, I think I showed you this picture a few years ago, Thrasher, but uh, one was like insect, giant insect movies. One was Frankenstein. And there wasn't much text about the making of the films, but you said these glorious high quality um, stills of those universal mm-hmm. horror movies. And they would just stare at those things over and over again just for the visual thing of it. Not We didn't have access to the old movies. Horror was a genre, although I love it. My family really didn't like it, except for maybe uh-huh. Stephen King's The Shining for whatever reason. <laughs> Otherwise, Dad would just call horror movies stupid and just refuse to rent them. Yeah. Uh, it was more like action movie or spy movie person. Uh, yeah. Or, or a slapstick, Three Stooges. He's a huge fan of that. Um, oh, same here, yeah. But, to this so, day. <laughs> right. But you, you go, and I mean, it was just a very simple book. And then later on, I really got into screen. Sort of embarrassing, but yeah, I wrote like a feature-length screenplay when I was in high school based on the video game Ninja Gaiden. So talk about fan fiction. I remember uh, that game. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it was, was kind awesome. of a, a Jackie Chan kind of thing. and. Nice. I was really into writing scripts, wrote a, read a lot of books about screenwriting and, and all these things. But I think one that stuck out, I thought the title was Shot by Shot, but I don't think that's quite right. Mm. But it, it's, it's a book that's an unconventional, basically it's like a widescreen format, and it's just all about listing what different shots are called. Oh, nice. And examples of what those are. And yeah. It sounds really rudimentary. Yeah, it, it sounds very rudimentary, but it's like very important to know those things and it, it's something you probably already know but you just don't know what the name is for it exactly yeah you, you've seen it a million times you can reference it but you don't actually know the literal term right they're sure it looks like you're looking at a book or something i i actually am so th- this this book is actually uh pretty important it ties into the wow. fact that we, yeah that cool. we just did a whole bunch of of the dead movies so this this is uh this is a book called Filming the Undead, How to Make Your Own Zombie Movie. Uh, this was this was actually a copy that was given to me by the author, Rod Durick, at uh, Con on the Cob. And I think that was either huh. in 2010 or 2011. Uh, my, my friend and publisher, Michael Varhola, was the gaming guest of honor, and I went with him to the convention to help him out and run his bo- help him run his booth and events. And these filmmakers were there showing off, uh, showing off their latest movie called uh, The Pig Man, which was like kind of a slasher film short. And they were finishing up post-production 
on a movie called a zombie movie called Prisoners of the Dead about some convicts where like they're they're prison uh, some convicts on the are being driven to prison. Zombie outbreak happens. Their their truck gets wrecked, and now this chain gang who's sort of still chained together has to navigate this zombie wasteland. Uh, and so they had a lot of clips for that to show. But this was uh, it's uh, it was uh, the guy who did the special effects uh, on Prisoners of the Dead was uh, Rod Durick. And this filming the undead, it really is a really nice comprehensive guide on how to make your own zombie movie. And it has an introduction you know, that covers, like, you know, the history of zombies in film. But then it, it goes over kind of all the stuff you would get in, like, any other filmmaking book, like how to do, you know, how to do storyboards. But then it also talks about how to raise money to make your, your zombie movie, how to do special effects, how to have good on-set height, uh, on-set safety, especially if you've got, uh, if you've got, like, weapon props. And that is something that I will say most books about filmmaking I've read very rarely address uh, safety from either a technical or liability or even practicality standpoint. But this movie is pretty, or this book is pretty thorough on how it handles safety. And then there's a huge section on how to do various gory special effects on a budget. <laughs> like, hey, very want to cool. want to have someone get shot up, but you don't have squibs? Here's a cheap alternative to squibs. It's <laughs> It's really cool, and you know, and it's and it's you know signed by the author. So like th this 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 book and how I got it has been very important to me. So filming the undead, how to make your own zombie movie by Rod Durick. Oh, and if you want to know about Rod Durick's uh, bona fides, so after producing Prisoners of the Dead, he has gone on to produce and do special effects for several of Debbie Rashan's recent movies, uh, particularly Killer Rack and Model Hunger. And Debbie Rashan is a scream queen. She's also an actress, an auteur. Uh, she's writing and producing her own B movies now. So this, cool. th there, there's some some it's, really it's great stuff behind though. this book. Yeah, yeah, uh, a fan of the show, and we had him on for some of the Pirates of the Caribbean episodes. Eric McEver, he's a expat living in Japan who has, uh, uh, among other things, written and directed the short film Paleonaut that has been uh, featured at such places as the Ubari International Film Festival and has won all kinds of awards. Uh, the book that meant a lot to him was uh, the Illustrated Star Wars Universe. And I'd never read this, but I really want to pick up a copy. It has all it has is uh, Ralph McQuarrie's Star Wars concept art for the original trilogy, and the text is by Kevin J. Anderson, who um, you know wrote a lot of the the Star Wars tie-in books in the early '90s. Uh, perhaps most notably, the Young Jedi Knight series he co-wrote with his wife Re Rebecca Moesta, or maybe that's a pen name. I'm not quite sure. He has he's, Kevin J. Anderson has written hundreds of fucking books, but. The, the Ralph McQuarrie artwork for Star Wars, if you've never seen it, is just better than the movies themselves. Just really yeah. like classical paintings. Um, in fact, what led to the original Star Wars getting made mainly was Ralph McQuarrie's paintings, uh, probably more than the screenplay, which was, <laughs> if you've ever had a chance to read the original Star Wars screenplay, is nearly incomprehensible. Yeah, it's got some. It's pretty rough at points. <laughs> Dark Horse Comics adapted that into a great graphic novel called *The Star Wars*. Oh, cool! Excellent. With excellent Very artwork cool. and kind of a confounding plot, but uh, from a yeah. standpoint, it's interesting. I guess it comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah, um, one that I really was obsessed with in uh, my early college days was this a series from the publisher Faber and Faber 
uh, in their Directors on Directors series, they did books like Gilliam on Gilliam or Scorsese on Scorsese. And these were... Yeah, yeah got a there you go. Yeah, excellent. Herzog on Herzog. Yeah, Altman and Altman. And, and they're just... The director talking about their films chronologically in these interviews that are just to the point. Gilliam on Gilliam is quite good because it has a lot of his sketches. Uh, so does Burton on Burton, for that matter. So that's sort of fun. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, they did a few updated versions. I don't know if they still do books in the series, but it's something that was sort of influential, almost like a book version of a abbreviated audio commentaries in a way. Yeah, and what I love too is that you get the process of all these different processes. Like, I mean, if you were to take how John Sayles goes about making a movie against how Herzog or David Lynch goes about making a movie, you couldn't be any more different, but you see these guys all have this like unifying passion to making films. And it's just funny because it's, it's basically just a book long interview, literally. And, um, and like if, like David Lynch, you know, basically be like something came to me in a dream or on the back of a placemat. I wrote the map to Twin Peaks. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then, you know, Herzog's talking about hypnotizing fucking chickens and stuff like that. And um, it's these guys are just crazy, but it's beautiful craziness that leads to, you know, art. <laughs> and sometimes these books have like really uh, the Lynch book in particular has some good photography in there. of Yeah. Of these weird side projects these uh, people might do. Weird's not yeah, like the right the, word for it. There you go. The, the fish kit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Odd. Uh, so, Alex, what's one for you? Um, yeah, we can skip the 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 director on directors series. Mm-hmm. Um, this one here is called the director's vision. And again, if you were to look this up online, you'd probably get a bunch of shit. But um, this is a really fascinating book. It's kind of like a coffee table book, but what it does is that. It's an alphabetized um, list of different directors. And what he did is that he'll basically pick a still shot from someone's movie. And then that kind of like launches into how it kind of synopsizes their career. Like, for instance, for the Hitchcock one, you've got, you know, um, the main dude uh, pretending to strangle some uh, innocent onlooker at a party to recreate a murder. And it basically goes into like, you know, Robert Walker demonstrates the art of strangulation to a society matron. A party <laughs> trick or is it? And that's kind of like the Hitchcockian, you know, philosophy in a nutshell. And what I like is that he kind of covers the smorgasbord like, you know, Fritz Lang, David Lean, um, and then kind of does like some unexpected ones. Like, um, for instance, like uh, Windsor McKay is in here. Um, uh, Chuck Jones is in here. Uh, Clint Eastwood and there's even some people that like he doesn't speak very positively of um, like the Brian De Palma one's pretty unfor, uh, unforgetting he, well, he wraps up by saying though formerly experimental early films like Greetings, Hi Mom, Phantom of the Paradise and Sisters suggested he was a restless erratic talent after the success of a gruesome shocker carry his work soon declined into all mannerism the concern first with style for style's sake has produced some of the glossiest, most easily conceived hand-me-down nonsense to emerge from Hollywood in recent years, undermining his reputation as an important filmmaker. So he doesn't let anyone off the hook, but it's a it's a real uh, vast, um, uh, you know, reference guide for a lot of different filmmakers, and it's led me to discover quite a few different directors, like the Taviani brothers or um, Nani Moretti, or guys like. Uh, Im Kwan Taek, uh, South Korean director. So pretty fascinating and thorough stuff. And, and who's and, the author uh, on that again? Uh, Jeff Andrew. 
and he writes for the BFI. And actually, during quarantine, I corresponded with him because it cuts off at 99. And I asked him, would you ever think of doing another edition where you'd include, say, P.T. Anderson or blah, 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 blah. And he said, like, it's so much work to get these books done and nobody reads them. <laughs> He's like, and I'm so glad you are and that you're interested in. He's like, why don't you do a book oh. like it on your own? I was like, okay, maybe. That's so nice. uh, a cool book and a cool guy who put it together. So, yeah, definitely. Pretty important uh, stuff. This roundtable style. Thrasher, next book. Uh, so this is another one that's that's uh, very important to me, and that would be <clears throat> that would be Lloyd Kaufman's "Everything I Needed to Know About Filmmaking I uh, Learned from the Toxic Avenger." Uh, this is, of course, by Lloyd Kaufman, the uh, the B movie auteur. Uh, him and Michael Hers are behind just about everything Troma ever did. The book, actually, parts of the book were in fact ghostwritten by James Gunn. James Gunn. Uh, that's awesome. But it but it works out. But it's and it's a fascinating book because it is half a biography about Lloyd Kaufman and the history of trauma films and half anecdotes that include like lessons about filmmaking. But they're all kind of from a very sort of from a very B movie standpoint, like one of like one of this is one of the books that actually does address safety. And it's all built around an anecdote about when an amateur, when a person pretending to be a stuntman almost died while making one of their films. And, and, and the lesson, the lesson really is ha- have as much safety as possible on your film set. Cause you can't count on a miracle to happen to save anybody's life. Uh, but then also right. other practical bits of advice, such as if your film has nudity, film the nude scenes first. Yeah. Makes sense to me. And it's all, and it's all just like very very playful, and it's also just interesting when he gets his like perspective on film because one of the asides, uh, Lloyd Kaufman's wife is a is a cancer survivor, and so one of the chapters it takes place like he hits him and Michael Hurst trying to run trauma while his wife is going through cancer treatment, and you know there was and there there was that period where he wasn't sure whether his wife was going to live or not, and of course they have two daughters, and there's this therapist recommended that they see this movie about a horse because like it might it it might help your children sort of if the worst happens it might sort of help your children psychologically prep and the rest of that chapter is about how god awful this horse movie is (laughs) (laughs) and like how he sort of takes it as a personal insult that 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 movie was recommended (laughs) as something that would help him and his daughters deal with the possible death of of his wife (laughs) I love um, I love Lloyd Kaufman's candor, and um, I don't know if I remember we might have talked about this on a previous episode, but like the cursed film series on Shutter, he goes at length about the uh, about the importance of safety, and he's cantankerous, but he's great. He's like, "That's fucking bullshit. Nobody should get hurt, and nobody should die making a movie." He's like, and again, he, like you were saying, Thrasher, he's very intent on being safe and making sure no one's injured because like you said, you can't count on a miracle to save someone's life. And, and with that curse series on shutter, um, that's specifically on the twilight zone, the movie episode, which fair warning, it's a very rough watch. Oh yeah. And, um, and actually on, on the subject of safety, there is something that was spelled out in everything I need to know about filmmaking. I learned from the toxic Avenger that really stuck with me. And it is actually something that I quote, 
uh, at every event I do at a convention every year, uh, which is that trauma has the three laws of production, which are safety to people, safety to people's property, make a good movie. And so when, yeah. whenever I do uh, do one of my LARP convention events, that is always how I open it, that we will, fo we will follow trauma's three laws of production, safety to people, safety to people's property, put on a good game. Yeah. And yet, a good mantra to go by. Uh, surprises will happen. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, accidents, accidents can happen, yes. but you can minimize the odds. Of it, absolutely. Um, a book that meant a lot to me. It's a bit esoteric. Um, it's no secret I like Sylvester Stallone. I'm, you know, he. You don't really see action movie auteurs that write and direct their own things that much. You might say Clint Eastwood, who didn't really do writing exactly, but probably the closest comparison I could make. Um, this is a book that's part fitness book, part memoir, called Sly Moves, My Proven Program to Lose Weight, Build Strength, Gain Willpower, and Live Your Dream. Uh, as, a, as a fitness weightlifting book, it's, it's fine as an introductory kind of primer to very basic, uh, I was going to say moves, but that just exercises, really. But the memoir part is uh, quite daffy and has a weird sense of humor and jumps all around the place. Uh, Stallone talks about how he he talks to his muscles to make them grow as, <laughs> as he's working out. He also mentions some of the weird early scripts he did that were never produced that I really wish they would publish. Like around the time of before he did Rocky, he wrote a lot of other feature scripts that never got made. And, you know, after if you look at the trailers for things like uh, uh, Paradise Alley, which was the, his first movie he directed and wrote. It's kind of like a Rocky style story, but about brothers in New York in the 20s that huh. are into it's not arm wrestling because that's over the top but it's some some kind of wrestling maybe it's just wrestling some kind of weird sport yeah. anyway around the time he was writing screenplays about a uh, a man who only would eat bananas and that was what the screenplay was about it was a drama <laughs> like it goes into a lot of very strange avenues um he talks about almost dying, taking a fitness trainer's advice to eat only yogurt before workouts. <laughs> and that's the thing is that, like, don't, um, it's a lesson of, like, like you said, um, action tours and stuff like that. And I think Sly has kind of a weird reputation. I think he gets kicked yes. around unfairly, sure. unfairly kicked around in that, like, you know, he's still an artist. And if, you know, you're, he's still going to have these very interesting takes on things and he's going to have a very unique take on life and that's why you're going to read his book <laughs> and and you know this came out in 2005 so not during a great part of his career before he did but i mean face it you know the, the guys in his 70s he did a new franchise that had a very successful trilogy the expendables or that yeah. we've covered them on a show in the sequel cast two show are those great movies not really but that <laughs> you have a bunch of you know nearly octogenarian uh <laughs> You know, yeah. action stars in this like dirty dozen kind of ma like massive Marvel team up sort of thing is, right. is something. His longevity is, is something to be admired. And uh, also around this time is when Stallone had a magazine that folded after a few issues and had his own line of protein pudding. And he, he hawks that in the book. <laughs> uh, and there's, there's little things I want less than a spoonful of Stallone's. Uh, lemon flavored protein pudding in my mouth. Running diagnostics in three, two. Men like that is a podcast. Good so far. That really sucks. Oh no! Shut her down! No, shut her down! They thought they could make something funny. They can't do anything. They can't. Abort mission! They can't.
Listen to men like that. Matt, I've got a great idea for a podcast. You and me, we watch movies, right? And some of them are kind of bad, and so we make fun of them. But maybe some of them are good. Chris, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And eat snacks. Movie Fighters, an original idea on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Is that still available anywhere? <laughs> um, On eBay, you can find oh, sealed copies. Sure. I kicked myself for not buying it at the time. It was quite expensive. Uh, and, and I wish I would have bought the magazine because it was a really glossy, well-produced magazine, although a bit of a, you know, kind of self-love fest. Um, yeah. Understandably. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I want to do like a live taste testing of that. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, but. It, 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 yeah. Go. Oh, so you say, uh, speak, so speaking of uh, magazines, there yeah. is a film magazine that has meant the world to me since I first started reading it in uh, 2004. Let me guess, uh, Rue Morgue? No, uh, interestingly oh. enough. Uh, although Rue Mar- Morgue certainly has its charm. Uh, no, I'm talking about uh, film, fa- uh, film Facts Plus. Uh, it, they're, 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 it used to be two separate magazines, Film Facts and Outre, but then they merged into one publication, just Film Facts Plus. And it's... It's a mix of sort of historical and critical articles about old Hollywood movies, monster movies, B movies, uh, but then in, uh, then really interesting interviews with people from the early days of film and television. They've interviewed a lot of classic uh, uh, Mad Magazine, Marvel, and DC Comics uh, artists, uh, but then also just really neat, like behind the scenes stuff. Like there, there is an, there's an article series that's been running through the past few issues, just all about the history of the laser gun, uh, in film and television. And it's, and it's really neatly researched and it has all these gorgeous shots of props of real laser guns from movies going all the way back to like the 1920s. Interesting. Yeah. It's it's just so really cool. Yeah, and just really awesome stuff. And every now and then you'll find something kind of instructive because they'll show old storyboards or old like maquettes and proof of concept things from early films. They did a really neat multi-part interview with Bob Burns recounting the history of the Bob Burns Halloween extravaganzas he used to do uh, at his house. Uh, And then briefly, I think, at a Universal Studios theme park where he would get all of his friends from Hollywood together and they would put on these just very elaborate, very high production value, sort of like haunted house tableaus. Like they, Interesting. Like they did one where in his house they recreated the exorcism scene from The Exorcist, and the woman playing the possessed girl would actually levitate off the bed. They got a professional magician to set up a levitation effect. Um, <laughs> they He had a swimming pool in his backyard, so he did a creature from the Black Lagoon thing, where you would go into the cave, and what made it work so well is that Everyone goes in and they expect the monster is going to come out of the water. It doesn't. The monster comes out of a side cave behind the group. So they literally get scared out of the cave by this monster showing up behind them. The best one, though, Walter Koenig uh, came over and they they staged an alien attack from aliens. They had a reproduction of the alien suit and Walter Koenig would pretend to be this technician in a spacesuit. And, like, he'd be talking to his commander on his walkie-talkie. Wait, I hear a noise. And then he would come out and be a t- the monster would come out and would just attack him. Great stuff. Great behind-the-scenes photos. Stuff from people's personal archives. I really, really recommend Film Facts. If you like old movies, obscure movies, uh, and things like that. 
And Film Facts FAQS, right? Uh, uh, no, Film Facts FAX. X. Oh, gotcha. I, I will say, Thrasher, when, uh, it, or Alex, if any of you guys, if we ever end up doing a panel in person together, which would be great at a convention, I will do my damnedest to order from uh, eBay Stallone pudding for us to try live. Nice. Uh, <laughs> so, hey. If you help organize a convention, you know, reach out to us. You want to see sure. us possibly get food poisoning live on stage at your convention. <laughs> we'll do it. In our we'll favorite, do an putting that was on uh, a shelf. Metabolize it faster. <laughs> yeah. I did used to have the Arnold Schwarzenegger protein powder when that was going on clearance. And um, oh, wow. it, it had some pretty gnarly flavors like banana pie, which I refused to purchase. <laughs> okay. And... Um, so Alex, it looks like you have, you said you have a stack of books. What's another one you want to? Oh yeah. Um, so just by virtue of her reputation, you would always hear her stories about Pauline Kale. Like Clint Eastwood had a story about her, how she called Dirty Harry a, a, a fascist masterpiece. There was a story that like um, John Cassavetti stole her shoes out of a cab once. <laughs> so you had all these stories and. I, you know, I was like, I got to check this out. And I got the Pauline Kale. Um, it was a collected works at Barnes and Noble one time. And I just thought it was phenomenal. And I could never understand why there was such like this fear against her because of there's so many directors. She is such like a hated critic. And I think um, she was incredibly influential. So this is the Pauline Kale for keeps. It's just a big nice. old fatty, fatty, yeah. fatty, fatty, fatty <laughs> collection of her work. And what I like is that there's not as much like arbitration to it. There's no real thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, I could you could read like a like an eight page review of Bonnie and Clyde, and you don't know if she likes or dislikes the film, but you get so much more than that. You know, and it kind of taught me that you can um, is that you can uh, you can point out stupid things about a movie you like. And another thing that I really admire too is that. There's so many movies or directors that you hear about, like um, so many of Robert Altman's great films were trashed at the time. Um, or a lot of John Cassavetti's early films are trashed at the time. Now they're beloved classics now. Um, or Michael Cimino's or whatever. And she routinely seems to be the like through line of all these early movies. She was the one that was always championing them. Like even when you know Sam Peckinpah was on the ebb and falling out of critical favor, she was still kind of seeing the, the the brilliance between the between the cracks and um it's just i think it's a really interesting time capsule of film criticism in that it's just less um i want to say it's a little harder to digest because it's more prose but it's so much more rewarding in that you have to work for it a little bit more and it's also fascinating because you know she, her her arrow is much you know kind of predates what we know as modern film criticism and um it was funny though she calls out like spielberg she's like this guy is going to be a huge deal um she calls out like nicholas cage he's like this guy just has this like madness about him that he can't contain um so it's fascinating and i've always i've always gone back to pauline kale and um it always seems like the two schools are either james ag or pauline kale and I'll be on Team Kale all the way. <laughs> Not only that with Pauline Kale, but she was eventually hired as a studio executive. Briefly. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, she was Paramount, just... maybe? I, I don't quite recall the studio. It's been a while, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, to, to make that jump from uh, her... The, there was a great biography of her that was written uh, within the past decade that I'd recommend. 
So she just sort of started from nothing and then happened to um, become an influential New York film critic uh, when when there wasn't as many critics and they really mattered. Or mattered more, I suppose, had more influence. Right. Um, fantastic. Okay. Uh, let's see. One, a book I really enjoy, or I'm sorry, Thrasher, it's your turn. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, a book, this this is also a book that was uh, 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 really important to me, uh, in part because of its history, but a real shame, Bad Movies and the Hollywood Stars Who Made Them. This is by Christopher Holland and Scott Hamilton. Uh, and they were the founders of the website Stomp Tokyo, stomptokyo.com, which was kind of both a place for people to post B-movie reviews, but also just kind of like a, ga a gathering of people who had a real love and affection for B-movies. And this is one of the very first books based on a blog, uh, based on the movie reviews they would have they would have written. Uh, it's expanded versions of what you would find on the website. But they're just really just... They're, they're, they're reviews of bad movies from from two guys who clearly love bad movies and can find can find the redeeming factor even in the worst film and when they find a movie that they don't find anything redeeming in you know it's bad and they do not hold back <laughs> so you what's it called again it's called a real shame bad movies and the hollywood stars who made them it's by nice. christopher holland and scott hamilton it's still available in paperback is it reprints Beautiful. of articles from their Stomp Tokyo website? Or... It's 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 based on articles from the website, but it has some expanded it has expanded material in it. Sure. Um, book I really in, enjoyed, kind of a more recent book. This one's a, a little bit kind of esoteric, and the more you know about old Hollywood, the more you'll appreciate this one. Is my lunches with Orson? Conversations between Henry Jagalum and Orson Welles. This is edited by Peter Biskind. Uh, this is just full of just really trashy stories. There's there's some controversy with this book in that allegedly um, Orson Welles might not have known he was being recorded at these lunches. Hmm. Uh, and Henry Jagalom is a filmmaker of, of sorts of his own right, but has some controversy as well. But I mean, despite all that, there's just a lot of really highly entertaining, often dirty stories in this this book that's a series of excerpts of, of transcripts from uh and I, I like how the introduction by peter biskin talks about how yeah. low quality these tape recordings are and like how you had i mean I, i've done a few a, a bit of work on a project i can't talk about um with the transcription and it's really hard to do even when the audio sounds good i can't imagine doing it where like the tape's falling apart and there's all this hiss everywhere and you have right. Orson wells magnificent voice telling these telling things like how much he hates john landis uh there's a great extended bit about an old film critic in new york or maybe it might have been a theater critic even who his his assist at, at this restaurant he would have um tea at every afternoon at tea time the the people at this um cafe hated him so much that gradually in the tea they would start pissing in the tea oh. Oh. <laughs> and increasing it more and more that towards the end he this this critic would say things he was apparently a terrible human being uh would say things like no one makes the tea like they do at this cafe but at that point they're serving them mostly piss well oh. it's, this tea is full of country goodness and green penis <laughs> yeah, it's, 
but uh, it sounded like um, you had read this book, Alex. Yeah, I I love this book too. I got it for um, I got it at a, a Secret Santa of all top places actually. Oh, so usually get crappy presents on those. This was a great one, yeah. and yeah, there's a lot of hot takes. Um, but like you said about the thing where you know maybe he didn't know he's being filmed uh, recorded. I mean, you know how recording equipment works, especially in the 70s, maybe 80s for some of these. Analog I mean, it's pretty bulky. Yeah. It's not like an iPhone mm-hmm. you can slip in your pocket or something like that. I have a feeling he knows it's being recorded, but it kind of feeds into the you know, there's like the myth of Wells, which is, you know, greater than the legacy of Wells, which is just, I think it's just all part of the fun of Orson Wells is that there's like four different truths for every story he tells. Um, and I also particularly love the story where he talks about, because he and Peter Bogdanovich were tight, but there's one yes. where he's totally, ripped, he's totally bitching about him when they're like, I think they're watching a John Ford movie and he's kind of being like an ass, like, shut up, don't talk and everything. I just like the cattiness that exists amongst these these like you know giants of cinema, and they're really just like us, you know, talking shit about each other, getting mad that one's talking about during a movie's playing. You know, it's it's got a great grounding effect to it. Yeah, cattiness is the perfect one-word description of the book. It's it's, it's yeah. extraordinarily bitchy, and just delightful. Three hundred twenty pages, not an especially long read. I mean, I, I'm, I. I you know, I, I talked about loving those uh, directors and director series, but I do love that oral history format where it's just a transcript. I think it's really right. easy to read. It's good to look back on to highlight things. I like big biographies too, but sometimes the the author's writing style can kind of, I think, get in the way of the meat of the content I'm interested in. Right. Yeah, just like the bare, um, bare bones more approach, like a transcript as always. You remember more. I feel like you retain more instead of trying to sift through someone's prose to get to the the goodies, so to speak. Yeah, Thrasher and I uh, wrote for the college newspaper at, or at least, did you write for the SCAD district? I thought you did. Oh, yes, I, I did uh, yeah, and, writing, and, illustrating, and uh, I was a paid editor there for a while. Well, you actually got paid. Wow. Nice. Lucky. Oh, yeah, uh, I mean, it wasn't, like, huge. It was. It's technically a stipend, but, hey, money's okay. money, baby. Money's money, yeah. right. Um, anyhow, you know, I would get into arguments with the, the, the arts and entertainment editor there who uh i'll be careful because he, he was thresher's roommate at one point and, and he's a nice guy but he was saying like oh well uh th- this q a format this like oral history format that's not really an article you're not really writing there and I, I i disagree like you can shuffle how things are ordered in that thing to make it flow like it still takes a, a fair amount of work it's different from oh, yeah. an article article but it's not without merit yeah it's, it's like editing an interview you know it, there's an art to it for sure yeah Alex, Definitely. next book. Um, this one, this is this is some some scandalous shit here. Um, not Hollywood <laughs> Babylon, but Hollywood Babylon yeah. Two. Oh yeah, exactly. Perfect fitting. Um, I mean, Hollywood Babylon had a lot of you know great juicy gossip. Um, I guess a little background. It's written by Kenneth Anger, who also was a filmmaker, and he made his reputation was kind of making these underground films of like these kind of witchy, satanic. Like orgiastic, you know, tales like inspired by like the great, you know, Egyptian gods and myths and shit. So, um, his writing style is very, again, very catty, very bitchy. Um, but there's some stuff in here that is like harrowing. I mean, there's, um, it goes into the, the, the blue Dahlia, which is just disturbing in itself. The poor girl that was massacred. Um, it's got some scandalous shit about um, James Dean. Apparently, you know, it talks about his um, 
you know, uh, it's talked about his life in the homosexual underground, as it's referred to, and how his nickname was the human ashtray because they found um, a bunch of cigarette burn scars all over his chest. Um, a lot of stuff on actors that, you know, we might not be too familiar with. Um, there's a great picture of Joan Crawford looking more terrifying than anything you would have seen in Baby Jane or um, any of the, those uh, later era movies that she did. Um, and for the period, too, I mean, this is like, you know, the haggard picture of Dean the day before he wrecked his car up. Um, and just the level of access Kenneth Anger had was crazy because he was a child actor way back in the day, way back in the silent, uh, mm-hmm. not silent days, but a long time ago. And he's just um, really goes into just just how horrid the, the studio system was back then. And just all the the raunchy little details that went into it, like Fatty Arbuckle killing a poor teenage girl because he's because suff- she suffocated underneath him because he's such a big bastard. And here's a that terrifying picture I was telling me about. Um, so just a fascinating book and uh, very juicy. And um, apparently, Kenneth Anger had been trying for years to make a third Hollywood Babylon, but it just didn't come to pass, unfortunately. So, if you can find it on eBay, this is uh, some juicy stuff there. I mean, get, like, Hollywood gossip really isn't my bag, but the classic stuff like that is pretty, uh, it's pretty wild. Thrasher. All right, so this is, uh, going back into the, uh, the sort of, the Lucas Spielberg well, uh, there's another book that's always been very inspirational to me, and that is From Star Wars to Indiana Jones, The Best of the Lucasfilm Archives. And it is, it's, it's photos of props and models uh, from all the, st- uh, what was at the time, all the Star Wars and all the Indiana Jones films. And I think it overlaps a little bit with the young Indiana Jones Chronicles as well in the final chapter. But it also has pre-production art, uh, some behind-the-scenes anecdotes, uh, set, set designs, maquettes, uh, sort of things that were made that didn't make it into the movie. It's just fascinating photographs with interesting history. And apparently it's, it was just all stuff that was in the Lucasfilm archives, just kind of boxed up in a warehouse, almost like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it's just like really fascinating to go through. Like there's a, like the, in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the famous minecart scene. One of the, one of the big pictures in this book is just a paper model of that of those rails just as kind of a proof of concept where they would take a little cart on a stick and run it through there like okay it should move like this this is where it should tip this is what we got to make work so like make it look like this when you actually build the the the, the miniatures it's really cool just also like behind the scenes stuff such as in star wars the rebel blockade runner in the cockpit there is a playboy centerfold pinned up on the bulkhead yep oh wow yeah, so like it's full of just like little behind the scenes details like that that you would that you so cool. wouldn't know just by seeing the film. I'm looking up the, some of the pictures right now. It looks like there's some wild stuff. I mean, like unfilmed, all this unfilmed footage, like mishmash stuff of like I see like a, it looks like a footage from Raiders with a lightsaber in it. Like <laughs> this is uh this is wild. Is this the book where the cover has a painting of George Lucas? 
No, the the cover it's two it's two paintings. Uh, the top painting is both a shot of the actual model of the Death Star two, but then it's bisected with a storyboard image of the Death Star blowing up, and then below it is a concept sketch of Indy's hat and whip, but that's also bisected so that you also see the real hat and uh, whip used in the film. That's awesome. Let's let's each do one final pick, and we'll have to do a part two of this ep- episode down the we, line. I didn't. We just might. So many special yeah. special books that we've read over the years. But this next one, I think, is is probably the number one film biography I've ever read, and it's an odd biography in that it covers two uh, people and kind of cuts back and forth between them. It's a massive book. It's 850 pages, more or mm-hmm. less, by Stuart Galbraith the Fourth, The Emperor and the Wolf: The Lives and Films of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. Uh, came out in 2002. Stuart Galbraith the Fourth has, I think nowadays he, he's lived in Japan for a while. He's trying to restore an old farmhouse to be a, a massive house or something, some ancient. And uh, he writes a lot of reviews for DVDReview.com on typically uh, older cinema or, or Asian cinema. But this one, it's uh, English language biography. Uh, the the footnotes the are just insane in this thing. Uh, and it just kind of cross-cuts between the film-by-film film of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. Uh, Toshiro Mifune, you know, was in a lot of Kurosawa's samurai films, but also in a lot of non-samurai films. And depending on your age, people might know him best from small roles in Steven Spielberg's 1984 or playing one of the leads in uh, the Shogun miniseries in the early 80s based on the novel by James Clavell. But this book is just excellent. I can't rave about it enough. It's uh, a hefty tome, but if, if you like uh, either of those guys, you'll definitely learn a lot by reading this. That sounds amazing. It's called um, The Emperor and His... And the Wolf. The Emperor and the Wolf. Nice. Yep. All right, cool. Alex, what's your last pick? Um, I'll... I'll follow that up with another Japanese movie book, the uh, the Yakuza movie book, which I'm sure doesn't oh. come as a surprise for either of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is really cool because not only is it kind of this like miniature encyclopedia for Yakuza films, and it's got plenty of them. I mean, going back to the silent era, even. And there's movies in here I've dedicated like years to trying to track down, so... That in and of itself is just the coolest thing ever. But it's also got a lot of interviews with... Um, the likes of uh, Ken Takakura, um, Takashi Miike, Takashi Kitano, uh, Seijin Suzuki, uh, Roko Mochizuki, a lot of dudes and a lot of, you know, older uh, directors who are no longer with us, such as, you know, Seijin Suzuki and guys like that. It's a very comprehensive um, read. I saw got an interview with Kenji Fukasaku, who you might remember from the Yakuza papers. Um, so great book, uh, very thorough. And if... If you're new to Yakuza movies, this is great, perfect way to learn and find out about, about a bunch of cool titles. And if you're really well-versed in, in Yakuza um, films, grab it as well, because there's, I mean, there's so much to go into and explore, because the genre is just everything for decades and decades at a time. So, so uh, you're a big fan of that awesome. genre, Alex. I, I'm wondering, you know, as as things move more and more away from physical media onto streaming, would you say it's easier than ever to find these old pictures or you have to know where easier to than I ever thought it would be. Yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah. 
Uh, Amazon Prime, I think in particular, is quite good with their selection. Yeah, they've got they've definitely got the capital on a lot of uh, streaming Yakuza films. There's like um, Doberman Cop, one movie with Bunta Sugawara I've been looking for for years, just popped right up, and I was like, damn, it almost seemed too good to be true. <laughs> Rasher, what's your last pick for this uh, episode? So my pick is actually a, a book that I've been trying to find. Uh, it's kind of an it's, it's more of an honorable mention. Uh, it's one of my white whales, and uh, there was uh, in the sixty late sixties, early seventies, there was a magazine called Fantastic Monsters of the Films, and this magazine was co-founded by Paul Blaisdale. Uh, now you might know Paul Blaisdale; he was the special effects guy who made the costumes and often played most of the most iconic monsters from Roger Corman's movie. He's the it from it conquered the world. He was the, she he built and played the she creature and the astounding she creature. He's behind all. If you remember any fifties and sixties B movie monsters, he probably built it and he was probably in the suit. How many um, times wow. was he in a gorilla suit? He didn't do gorillas. Really? That was okay. it, Gorillas was really? usually Bob Burns. That, okay. Oh. With the B, that is what I was getting confused with. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, he 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 did he co-founded this magazine, and one of the reasons why it's a holy grail is that they didn't they didn't just make it for for monster movie fans; they did it for amateur monster movie makers. So each issue had multiple articles about filmmaking, and he would show you how he made his monster designs. They would show you how to do different special effects, and it was all stuff an amateur filmmaker could do with stuff you could find at a hardware store and stuff you could do with a Super 8 camera. And I would love to get a hold of those articles. Sadly, uh, it only ran about eight issues because as it turns out, the company that was publishing and distributing it uh, was kind of a shady business and was trying to use the magazine as a write-off, but then mm. it sold too well. So <laughs> then like the publisher just stopped contacting them and like, had proofs for a final issue that may or may not have ever seen the light of day. Um, oh my uh, so a few years ago, somebody managed to get all of the material together. The entire run is now published in one book called Fantastic Monsters of the Films: The Complete Collection. It wow. is hard to find and it is expensive, but like this is currently my white whale as far as movie books go. Right. I want to get this. I want to read it so badly. So you don't have it is that what you're saying i i don't have it this is a book that i have been trying to track down at a reasonable price for quite some time when you say it's right. a reasonable price what are we talking about uh, minimum bucks? it's like minimum uh 80 i think 80 is 80 is so the lowest prices. i've seen yeah. and i've seen it go as high as like 300 on like yeah. online auctions on that note let's end it on a question what's the most you recall paying for it not a film book let's just say for a movie Ooh. For a physical copy of a movie, what's the most you've paid for something? Mm, don't don't I'm put almost... and you can put box sets of TV series, whatever you want. I'll I'll, I'll start because I know the answer. I it was when I was getting into anime. Not that I'm embarrassed about uh -oh. that period, but it was uh, right. especially pricey to do uh, early on. And uh, Cowboy Bebop, I used all my Christmas money to buy the Cowboy Bebop box set on these standard definition DVDs. It was one season of, of a cartoon. Granted, Cowboy Bebop is, is quite good, and it's getting a live-action yeah. version, um, you know, from, from Netflix in the next few years. I paid $200 for one <laughs> season. Yeah. A anime wasn't cheap back then. It was even worse yeah. than videotape days. But it's like, 
yeah. I think about that and like I, I kick myself in the I, like I kick my 20 year old self in the balls for that. Like, right. But you never know. I mean, it's like like you said, the VHS days. I remember paying like 25 bucks for like an episode of like Ninja Scroll yeah, I, or I, I, you know, something like that. Right. Oh. I mean, like like years ago, I was in a Best Buy and they were doing a Father's Day sale. And uh, I wish I would have picked stuff up, but I was being frugal, so I didn't. The Cowboy yeah. Bebop on Blu-ray, high definition, uh, 29.99. Yeah, I think I paid 20 bucks for mine. Yeah. It was on sale on Amazon. <laughs> right. So, but I was like, I paid two hundred dollars for that shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. I, know, right? com- I can't compete with that. I think I. I think the highest I ever went was around fifty bucks or so, and I think that was for that special limited edition, uh, Big Trouble in Little China anniversary set that had the two Ooh. discs and all the special features. Was and it the like commentary in a tin? A tin disc? Did it come with like a, a plush doll or something? Or a, it did. No, it didn't come with. It just came with like the two movie, bucks? and it's all in a very nice case. <laughs> Uh, okay, and Alex. Um, I think the most I'm borderline embarrassed to admit it. It was um, for Anne Hoy's The Secret, which was like, like you said, Thrasher. It was like my white whale for years. Um, I mean, like years, and it was only available as like a YouTube rip. It was a YouTube rip of a VHS rip, and it just looked like pure shit. Like. And then um, a a Blu-ray of it came out, and you know I was astounded. And they printed like so few, many of them. And I had been looking and looking and looking, and then I had kind of just given up. And then somehow I found um, on eBay that there was just one on there, and it was going for eighty-nine pounds, which goes, which uh, translates to one hundred and sixteen dollars, including shipping. Oh wow! Uh, no, not including shipping. Okay, about twenty bucks. Um, <laughs> but brother, it's the only copy I think I'll ever find online. I mean, I'm not gonna find this thing at Newberry Comics or or the record store or the huh. sure. you know at the thrift it, store it, or anything and, and like that. When you got that copy and played it on your all region player, or whatever it is you're using, holy shit! The quality compared um, to the YouTube. Was it was it a Blu-ray? Oh. Was it a DVD? What was the format? I thought there was. I thought the scene was at night. Like it was. There's oh, okay. like characters okay. I didn't even know about. Like I mean, wow. it, was, it, it knocked me the fuck out. So ridiculous amount of money I spent on that. Sure, and it maybe had something to do with the stimulus of this past year. I don't know, but <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I seldom ever do anything like that. I'm actually very cheap sometimes, but um, for that one, yeah, I went the I went the distance for. And Hoy is a secret. Yeah, I need to. Um, God, what? Yeah, I'll close it out on this last one. It's so stupid. Like I, I was trying to uh, have have merch to give away at a at a or prizes rather. I, at every convention I do a panel at, I have stupid trivia questions that are easy for people to answer that I just give away prizes for, so I can say. There's prizes you can win just to get right. up, right? It's an easy thing you can do. It's kind of cheesy. And I, I was doing one on the films of Uwe, the video game films of Uwe Ball. This was before the book came out. And from eBay through um, Gary Otto, one of Uwe Ball's producers, I bought a signed copy DVD region one of Blood Rain Deliverance, which I think is one of Uwe Ball's worst video game movies. It, it's the vampire movie set in the Wild West. And uh, I paid $65 for something I did with free as a prize. I normally, you know, just go to the comic shop, buy some dollar comics, and give those away as prizes. But 
But you know, but you know, whoever stopped that, that loves, loves and probably, probably made their day. I'm not I even convinced about that, but <laughs> true. We'll go with that. So, on that note, uh, for uh, yeah, this was a fun discussion on uh, allegedly on you know film books. I think we stuck to the topic pretty you know, books about film that inspired us and film classes we took in college and so forth. So for SequelCast special, uh, this is Matt. Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. And uh, if you like the SequelCast uh, special, any of our SequelCast shows, just look up SequelCast 2 and Friends on Apple Podcast and leave us a good review. Uh, Thrasher? You can follow me uh, at Internet Mayor and also check out our theme music performed by Mark with a C. You can listen to more of his music at markwithac.com. Alex? You can follow me on Twitter at CrabNebula1914. And uh, if you want to find anything cool and weird and fun on YouTube, check out the Trailer Project. So for Sequel Cast Special, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. This is Alex. Zane. Can you hear that? That's the sound <laughs> yes. of rustling pages. That's great. They're flipping <laughs> through the pages of the book. Alex is smacking the book against his head. Now, another name that came up several times in your responses was that of Roger Ebert. This is from P. Jim. I started with the textbook Understanding Movies as it was recommended by Roger Ebert, then studied books like How to Read a Film and the Excellent Film Art and Introduction.